Father, this morning we come to you and we confess our sinfulness and our weakness. Uh, we confess, Lord, that unless you open our hearts, they will be hard. So I pray that you'd open our hearts to your word, that you'd feed us and nourish us, Lord, we pray. We confess that we cannot do that on our own. We cannot do that by simply listening. We need your Holy Spirit to help us. And I need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help me as well. We confess our weakness to you, and we pray that you'd visit us. We ask you to visit us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen. So Psalm 13, I've titled, Walking by Faith, Not Feelings. And feelings are really important to us. We all wrestle with negative feelings, positive feelings too. But the ones that trouble us are the negative ones. Sometimes it's depression. At other times, it's despondency or listlessness. Uh, sometimes we feel hopeless. We feel guilty. We feel inferior. We feel like we're a failure. Sometimes that's rooted in reality. Some, a lot of times it's not. Uh, then there are also the disabling feelings of stress and anxiety. I talked to an individual recently who's really struggling with stress and anxiety. And I've had times when I struggle with stress and anxiety. How about the, anyone else here struggle with stress and anxiety? Yeah. You know, we're not supposed to feel anxious, but we do. If we had perfect faith, we wouldn't feel anxious. One of the texts that greatly encourages me in the Bible is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, and on top of that, there's my anxiety for all the churches. Yes, Lord, thank you. That Paul struggled with anxiety, because sometimes I do too. We feel betrayed sometimes. And also, there's also the positive feelings of joy and peace and security and being loved and accepted by others. But that was not David's condition, positive feelings, when he wrote Psalm 13. He was crying out to God because he felt forgotten. He felt like God had hidden his face from him. He, he, David feels like God is his enemy, excuse me, like his enemy has obtained the upper hand. So he prayed, but God doesn't seem to be answering. Okay, so that's what the background here in this prayer. So what was the context? Well, we're going to have to guess at this. We're guessing at it from the context in which this psalm was written, the other psalms around it, plus a few key words in the psalm. The context is probably David's, in his late teens, being pursued by Saul in the wilderness. And at this point in time, he has between 400 and 600 men that are following him. But Saul is following him with an army of 3,000. So he's greatly outnumbered. He's young. He's fearful. And he's inexperienced. When David was about 15, you remember the story, the prophet Samuel anointed him with oil and told him that God had chosen him to be the next king of Israel, the man who would be the king after God's own heart. At the time, Saul was king. David actually became king when he was about 30, so there's a 15-year wait between these two events. Meanwhile, anointed by God, this 15 or 16-year-old slays Goliath with the sling stone, as we all know the story. Saul's troops rallied to David, and he became successful in battle. The, so successful that the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed 10,000. And the result was that Saul became jealous. He tried to kill David, but David fled into the wilderness. So several years have now passed since he's fled from Saul, 
And for David, it is a time of great trial, rejection, deprivation, and suffering. He feels betrayed. Psalm 13 records David's temptations to live by his fears and feelings rather than by faith in God's word, which was the promise that someday David would be the king of Israel. So a period of time has passed. David's under great stress. It doesn't seem like God is answering his promise to David to make him the king of Israel. In fact, since that promise has happened, David's life is just going downhill steadily. Now, if any of you have ever had God speak to you like God spoke to David or make a promise like that to you, you know that there's oftentimes big gaps in time between when the promise is made and when the promise comes to fulfillment. Psalm 13 is in the Bible to exhort us to do the opposite, to walk by faith, not by our feelings. That's the big idea today. I want you to take this away, walk by faith, not by feelings. The psalm has three movements, and we'll go through these, and then we'll make a few words of application. The first is David's feelings. The second is David's prayer. And lastly, the third is David's faith. So verse 1 and 2, look at those again. You'll see them on the screen behind you. Notice here, I mean, David's desperate. Four times he says, how long, O Lord? Okay? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How many of you have felt like this at some time? Come on, I don't believe that. If you're living in the real world and you've been a Christian for very long, you've felt like this at many times. Verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David wants deliverance from depression. He's fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. He's under great pressure. How does he feel? He feels forgotten by God. He asks, will you forget me forever? Have you ever felt forgotten by God? Come on. I know you have. Uh, because our feelings are a very real part of us. God has made promise to, to David, and these promises don't seem to be happening. He feels like God has hidden his face from him. How long will you hide your face from me? I felt like God has hidden his face from me. Oftentimes, I walk at night and pray when he, after it gets dark because there's nobody to disturb me down our lane, and I, I can pray when I walk. But oftentimes, I'm walking and praying, and I feel exactly like this. I feel like God has forgotten me. I feel like God has hidden his face from me. I'm not feeling anything from God. How many times have you, God, I'm not feeling anything from you. Would you help me pray tonight? See? I know you're there, but my emotions are not cooperating here tonight or today or whatever it is. Sometimes I pray for the same things over and over and over again, and there doesn't seem to be an answer. Got a great answer this morning. My good friend Jim Nimnich, who was diagnosed with cancer a few weeks ago, we've been praying fervently for Jim. Judy and I have, and he found out, was it yesterday or today, that he got a great positive report from the doctor that, they, that this cancer is a, kind of an inert type that doesn't grow, and they don't need to do anything with it right now. An answer to prayer. So I, I thought... I thought, God, thank you for giving me that little illustration this morning as I'm going to get into the pulpit. God, we serve a prayer-hearing God. 
How many times have you prayed for somebody that doesn't know the Lord? Somebody, a close relative or a close friend or maybe somebody you work with and you're just more than, maybe just a child and you, more than anything else on earth, you give anything to have this prayer answered and nothing seems to be happening. God doesn't seem to be hearing your prayers. This is how David's feeling. He feels like God has hidden his face from him. Again, how long will you hide your face from me? It feels like God is a million miles away. The text says also that he feels sorrow in his heart all the day long. Sorrow in the heart. He feels like a failure. He feels crushed by a conquering enemy. And this is one of the reasons we think this was written when Saul's pursuing him, because he says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? His enemy, in this case, is King Saul, who's pursuing him. Wise Christians constantly contrast one part of the Bible with another. So, for example, hasn't God promised to answer prayer in the New Testament? That was Jesus' promise in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But that's not what's happening here, is it, with with David? At least he doesn't feel like that's what's happening. And also think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The only perfect man whose all of his prayers will be heard is crying out to God the Father, God, if there's any way you can take this cup away from me, take it away from me. And God the Father says, no. See, these are all the things we need to, we need to, so is, so is the text not true that, that uh, God is going to answer our prayers? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying everything, every text in the Bible needs to be put in the context of the rest of the Bible. And this psalm gives us a context that's really helpful to us. This is not David's experience. John 15 is not David's experience. What is wrong? Why isn't God answering him? This paradox is a good example of what we call the rule of faith. Every text, in this case dealing with prayer, must be framed in the context of every other text on prayer in the Bible. David was not alone in his feelings of abandonment. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah's job was lonely. It was filled with stress, rejection, and deprivation. He had a really difficult job, which was to prophesy to the Jewish people just as Babylon was taking over Jerusalem, that God had sent Babylon to destroy Jerusalem as a judgment, and that the Jewish people were not to resist the Babylonian armies. Now, do you think Jeremiah was popular? No, he was not popular. He was persecuted bitterly by the Jewish people who thought he was on the, on the side of their Babylonian enemies. He wasn't on Babylon's side, he was on God's side. And God was with the Babylonians. He'd sent them as a judgment. Well, here's what David, Jeremiah writes very transparently about himself. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon. Because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave, and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow, and spend my days in shame? The Bible is very transparent, isn't it? 
And this should be a great encouragement to us when we're at a low point, that we're not the only ones that have been here. David, Jeremiah, how about the Apostle Paul? He was also willing to share his feelings with us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Which is, he's speaking of Asia, which is now Turkey. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's low. Indeed, and this is one of God's favorites, Paul. Jeremiah, one of God's favorites. David, the man after God's own heart. So if God will let these men go through these experiences, how about you and I? He will with us. He loved these men, and yet they, he let them get low like this. Why? Well, God was at work, and Paul tells us. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So, depression, sorrow, the feeling that God has hidden His face from us, the feeling that our pr- God is not hearing our prayers, our experiences that the saints have experienced for the last 3,000 years. Yes, David is depressed. And as I just mentioned, this is not unusual for believers. It is not your best life now, following Christ. But David also knows that his emotions are unstable and undependable. David is aware that his sin nature distorts and twists his emotions. He knows he cannot rely on his emotions. God created emotions to be our servants. God gave our emotions to Adam and Eve to serve Adam and Eve. And before sin came, they would have always been doing that. They would have always encouraged Adam and Eve to do the right thing and discouraged them from doing the wrong thing. But when sin came, our emotions became distorted. So, uh, you know, for sometimes for Adam and Eve, their, their emotions would have supported virtue and godliness. So, for example, I feel like worshiping. I'm going to worship. I feel like serving. I feel like keeping my commitments, so I'll keep my commitments. I feel like praying this morning, always when I get up. I feel like rejoicing in God's presence. I feel like family devotions. I feel like paying my bills. I feel like going to church, etc., etc. The emotions that have always been supportive that way. But sometimes our emotions don't do that. They discourage, they encourage disobedience. I feel like skipping in and sleeping in and skipping church this morning. I feel depressed and lethargic. I'm not going to do, do, I'm not going to do any of my daily duties today. I'm just going to lay in bed and do what I feel like doing. I don't feel like praying or reading the Bible, so I'm not going to pray or read the Bible. It doesn't feel like the Bible's true today. It doesn't feel like God is there today. I want to digress for a moment and just talk about how we've gotten to the place where we're at with our emotions. The culture in which we Christians are embedded, Western culture, amplifies this problem. As much as we don't want to admit it, our culture affects us greatly. And the underlying presupposition of modern secularism is that feelings are not a problem. Rather, feelings are to be our rule and our guide. Modern culture assumes that, assumes that objective standards outside of my feelings, for example, the Ten Commandments, the Bible, don't exist. And if they didn't exist, they wouldn't matter anyway. Only feelings matter. 
Feelings are the compass by which modern man directs his life. A Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, has enabled this or labeled this outlook expressive individualism. You've probably heard that expression before. It's a fairly new ter term in our current terminology. Expressive refers to the idea that my feelings should be expressed through my behavior. I'm going to express my feelings through my behavior. The word individualism means nothing matters but me, the individual. Obligations to social institutions like family, church, country, and employer are not important. All that matters is how I feel and my obligations to those feelings. Uh, I, if, I'm, if I'm a legitimate, if I'm authentic, then I'm going to live by my feelings. Well, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us, isn't it? Where do these feelings come from? Well, there was a madman from the, or these ideas come from, there was a madman from the 18th century named Rousseau. He was a philosopher. How many of you have heard of Rousseau? Okay, good. He was an evil man. Uh, in fact, I would have to say he was a, was a bit of a madman. If you've read his biography, you'd have to agree with that. Glenn Sunshine, an academic at a college on the East Coast, a Christian academic who's a historian, said this. If I was in a room with Hitler and Rousseau and only had two bullets, I'd shoot Rousseau twice. <laughs> Let that sink in for a sec. If I was in a, Hitler, in a room with Hitler and Rousseau and I had two bullets, Rousseau was so much worse than Hitler that I'd shoot Rousseau twice. He's done incalculable damage to Western culture. In the words of Carl, in the words of Carl Truman, Rousseau taught that Uncultured instincts and feelings are really who we are. Our feelings are who we are. Civilization merely hinders, twists, and perverts these, making us conform to its demands and rendering us inauthentic. In other words, the authentic person doesn't let anybody tell them how to act. They're going to follow their feelings. This is not Christianity. Christians live by objective truths. Objective truths is about facts outside of myself that are true no matter how I feel about them. When our feelings are going south and the truth is going north, we go north because we ignore our feelings and we do what we know is right. We know we, we line ourselves up with according to what is true. I was talking with a woman a couple days ago who's in her late 40s, has a, a brood of small children. And she's really under stress. She's in a bad place. And she said to me, I'm depressed. I'm stressed out. I'm burnt out. She said, but I know two things. Now, that's how she's feeling. She said, I know two things, though. God is sovereign. In other words, this has happened to me because God has allowed it. And secondly, she said, God is good. And I'm clinging to those two truths. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's what a Christian does. That's what this woman is doing. She's living beyond her feelings. She's feeling like David in Psalm chapter 13. She's probably feeling worse than David. But she's not going to give in to her feelings. She's not going to live by her feelings. We, we perform our obligations to social institutions outside of ourselves, like our family, church, etc., despite our feelings. Facts, not feelings, rule believers. God wants us to walk by faith, not by feelings. 
Okay, that's point number one. That's four times longer than my other two points. <laughs> okay, point number two is in verse three and four, David's prayer. How does David respond? He turns to God in prayer, just like he did last week. How does David handle these feelings? Well, he doesn't turn inward. He doesn't look to his feelings to discover the truth. He looks outside of himself. He ignores his feelings and turns to the great objective truth with a capital T, God, outside of himself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. I love that song today. And I thought, that's the perfect song for this sermon. That's what we do. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. God, I don't feel like you're there. I don't feel like you love me, but you are there, and you do love me. I'm turning my eyes upon you. That's what David's doing here, verse 3 and 4. He writes, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I'm shaken. David prays for revelation. He prays that God will unveil himself, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. David prays, asks God for deliverance from his enemies, light up, uh, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. He asks God to answer his prayer. He turns to God for relief. Nothing helps emotional depression like telling God how you really feel. God, I feel depressed. I don't feel like praying right now. God, help me feel like praying. God, uh, it doesn't feel like you're there, but God, I know you're there. Lord, help me feel like you're there. God, it feels like you're hiding your face from me, but I know you're not hiding your face from me because Scripture says you will never leave me nor forsake me. But God, that's how it feels. Lord, help me. Help my feelings. A lot of times when I leave the house to pray at night, I'm walking, I'm, I, maybe I've been watching TV or I've been reading a book or something, and my mind is elsewhere. And I say, and I, say I lift my eyes to the Lord, and it, it doesn't, I mean, I'm not in the mood to pray. So what do I do? I say, God, I'm not in the mood to pray. I talk, talk to God about how I really feel. Because the Lord knows how I feel. He knows everything about me. Lord, I don't feel like praying. But God, I know you want me to pray. So, Lord, would you help me to pray? And as soon as I pray like that, almost always I start to feel like God's going to help me and equip me to pray, pray, to enter into prayer, and he does. God, I don't feel like reading the Bible this morning. It's open in front of me. I know I should read the Bible. I really feel like reading the sports page. That's how I feel. If I was led by my feelings, that's what I'd do this morning. But I'm not going to be led by my feelings. Lord, I'm, because I... I want you to feed me from your word. So, God, I open scripture and I pray, God, help me. You know how I feel about the Bible. You know I'd rather read the sports page this morning. And that's an insult to you because that means I'm more interested in the sports page than I am you. But you know me, God. Help me, Lord. Help me read scripture. And you know what happens every time? God helps me. God comes to me. God helps me because he knows where I'm at. It's good to just tell him where you're at because he already knows that. But it also helps you to confess that. God, it feels like you're angry with me. But I know you're not angry with me because the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I don't feel like going to church this morning. But I know you want me to go to church this morning. So Lord, would you help me get my family together 
and get my fanny to church this morning. See, because we live by obligations to institutions outside of ourselves. And we founded the church years ago, and we started talking about membership. We had a terrible time getting people to become members, marker members. And it took us about three years of constantly talking about membership before people started to become members. And that's because we live in a culture that is, that is uh, motored and run by its feelings. And most people are unwilling to make commitments to institutions outside of themselves because our whole way of life has been saturated by the thinking of men like Rousseau. Even though you may have never read Rousseau, it doesn't make any difference. The Enlightenment has heavily affected North American culture. But gradually we began to get, get uh, the whole concept of membership going. But that's what we had to resist people's unwillingness to make commitments to institutions outside of themselves. So number two, David turns to God in prayer. And number three, David's faith, verse five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. That word but, in my Bible, I have a big circle written about that, around that, and I have it highlighted in yellow. Why is that? Because David's basically saying, but, but, this is how I feel, God, I've turned to you in prayer, but the truth is, now here's the truth, here are the facts. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me no matter how I feel about it. I've trusted you. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm not going to trust my feelings. I'm going to, I'm going to put my confidence in you. David exercises faith in the truth. He decides to live by truth outside of himself, which is the realities of God's existence and, and commitments to institutions outside of himself. I've trusted in your steadfast love, verse 5. My heart rejoices in your salvation because you, I will sing to the Lord. See, I will. My will is going to be involved. I'm going to sing songs of praise, even though I don't feel like singing songs of praise this morning. He meditates on God's past mercies, not his future fears. Verse 6, he begins to sing to the Lord as he remembers how bountifully God has dealt with him in the past. So, David's feelings, David's prayer, David's faith. So, brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you this morning to live the same way. How many of you face conflict between your feelings and faith? We all do, don't we? I do, you do. It's a very practical sermon this morning. So we have two short applications. Number one, saving faith lives by objective truth, not feelings. God's love is not always a set of warm, fuzzy feelings. I'm going to say that again. God's love is not always a set of warm, fuzzy feelings. Uh, sometimes we feel God's love. We have, uh, when we were worshiping this morning and singing that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, I began to weep, and I thought, I got to get this, I'm going to get up in the pulpit and be all blurry-eyed, this could be really bad. But that doesn't happen to me very often. Just the opposite is oftentimes the case for me. So I don't feel anything. God, but there, what's the truth? What's the truth here? It doesn't depend on my feelings. What's the truth? The truth is, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The truth is, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that does not depend upon your performance to get in on that. You're going to get on that because you believe the gospel and you turn from your sins. But Bill, you don't understand. I've done this and I've done that. I haven't, I haven't read my Bible in two weeks. I haven't prayed. Surely God is really angry with me. Well, you've disappointed God. I mean, God's not pleased with that. But God will not withdraw his love from you. It's like you're a father. Then you have children. And your children can do things that don't please you, right? But if you're a father and they're your children, you never withdraw your love from your children, do you? You're always for them. You're always on their team. You're always rooting for them. You always love them. You always want their best interest. You'll do anything to help your kids succeed, right? Can they disappoint you? Yes. Can you be grieved at the things they do? Yeah, you sure can. Can, can, can they displease you? Yes. But you're, if you're a parent, you will never withdraw your love from your children, your commitment to them. And that's what the Bible tells us. I will never leave you nor forsake you, even if you screw up. Okay? So when we're in those, having one of those days where we say, oh man, God's really distressed with me. All you have to do is say, God, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this, or I haven't done this, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done this. All you do is you look to God, you say, God, forgive me. And He forgives you. And, and He's never withdrawn His love from you anyway. And so now you're reconciled to Him completely. He forgives you on the basis of His Son's death, which took all the punishment that you deserve for whatever it is you've done or haven't done. And now you're free. And you're free to fail again. You'll, and you will fail again. And you will have to ask His forgiveness again. But that's okay because you're one of His children. And He will never withdraw His love from you. That's the truth. And Romans chapter 8, verse 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever, ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Paul goes through quite a list in that verse of the different things that could separate us. Paul said, none of these things can separate us. The only thing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, is if you turn your back on God, walk away from Him, and quit believing the gospel. That's what it would take. And I'm trusting that none of you are going to do that. So, what was true yesterday when you felt like it was true has not changed just because you don't feel like it's true. I'm going to say that again. What was true yesterday when you felt like it was true has not changed just because now you don't feel it's true. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. That's what I'm trying to say. Be like David. Turn from your feelings to objective reality. Verse 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. But, but God, I feel, I feel, God, I feel, I feel. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll rejoice. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that Christ loves us when we don't feel like he loves us? Well, the Bible tells us, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us. He acted. 
He did something infinitely costly to save you. He paid a price that we can never understand because we can never pay that price. We can never feel the pain he felt, the rejection that he felt, the sorrow that he felt when he went to the cross because even his Father in heaven rejected him because our sins rested upon him. How do we know that he loves us? It's not because we feel this or that. It's because we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full into his wonderful face. And what do we see? We see a crucified Savior. So God says, you're not always going to feel my love, but this is, these are my feelings for you. This is how you know I feel affection for you. This is how you know I'm on your team. This is how you know I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Look at my son on the cross. So our first application is, don't live by your feelings, live by faith. Second application, God's word amplifies faith. <clears throat> Where do we get this kind of faith that allows us to live above and beyond our feelings? Faith comes from hearing, the Bible tells us, and hearing from the word of God. Read the Bible. Now, I know many of you lack this faith because you don't immerse yourself in Scripture very often, and good books on the Christian life. Good books on the Christian life are also very helpful. Many of you lack this kind of faith because you don't spend enough time in prayer and you don't read the Bible, okay? I want to encourage you to do that. I don't want to bring any condemnation this morning because you're not doing that, but I would like to bring conviction because with conviction, there's the sense that God loves me and there's hope that He's going to help me improve or grow in godliness and holiness. Our faith is often weak and our emotions tend to overwhelm our faith just because we're not connected to the truth, the truth outside of ourselves. The more we live by faith, the more our feelings cooperate with our faith. Say that again. The more we live by faith, the more our feelings cooperate with our faith. The less we live by faith, the less our feelings cooperate with faith. In other words, if I don't live by faith and I let my feelings dominate me, my feelings will dominate me more and more. If I live by faith and don't let my feelings dominate me, I will, I will live above and beyond my feelings more and more. Here's how Jesus said it. To he that is, has more, more will be given. But to he that has not, even the little that he has will be taken away. So I want to encourage you to live by faith because the more you do that, the more grace you will have to live by faith. I don't want to encourage you to live by your feelings. Think of objective truth as the engine of the believer's train. The engine is truth. Think of your feelings as the caboose of the train. God's truth is pulling and leading our feelings. For North American culture, as we've already suggested, feelings and emotions are the engine of the train, and faith or facts are the caboose of the train. That's, the, that's what I'm trying to say today. And so we need to understand that about ourselves, the environment in which we live, and how much we are subjected to that, and just understand that this is a cultural weakness that we need to overcome. If we live by objective truth, our feelings will slowly change and become increasingly supportive, and that is what we want. If we live by objective truth, our feelings will slowly change and become increasingly supportive, and that is where we want to go, okay? Let's close with prayer. Let's ask God to help us. I'm weak here. 
you're weak here. We need God's grace, don't we? You need God's grace, I need it. So let's ask God to help us. He loves us. Father in heaven, we turn to you. And we confess this morning that you love your children. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness. And we ask you now to help us walk by faith, not feelings. We ask you to be like David, but I will trust in your steadfast love. God, help us do that. Lord, we are weak. We confess that to you. We are sinners. We are inconsistent. We're not very disciplined. We need grace from you, Lord, to do that. We also need grace from you, Lord, to immerse ourselves in your word. We confess that we don't always want to read the Bible or pray. Father, would you help us do that? We need your help. We need your grace to enable us, to motivate us to read the word and pray. Father, we turn to you as the Father of all mercies. We ask you for these favors in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.